how do you create a healthy and savvy and confident relationship to money? And how do you do work and create a livelihood that you love? That's important to me. And I know that that's not possible everywhere in the world, right? But it is possible where we live. And I want that for my son. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am glad you're here for another week. We had a fantastic interview or fantastic conversation with Barry Tesler. Before we get into Barry's conversation, I have a favor, like I do every week, but I'm going to ask again. If you are enjoying these episodes, if you enjoy hearing from our fantastic guests like Barry, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It definitely does help bring fantastic guests like Barry. So who is Barry? Well, Barry is a financial therapist, an author, the founder of The Art of Money, which is a year-long money school and global community. Barry has such an interesting and fascinating background, and we really get into her story, her money story. Barry has an interesting background where she has a master's in somatic psychology from Naropa University. And she worked in the mental health field for over a decade before realizing her mission was to merge emotional literacy with financial literacy. And we talk a lot about that on today's show and how this was created or when it was created in her life. Super interesting. Barry shares some wonderful stories on how she was introduced to a money mentor that really helped put her on the path to creating this fantastic methodology that is the underbelly or the foundational roots to her year-long money school. Barry's work has been featured everywhere from Oprah.com to Inc.com, The Cut, US Today, Nerdwall, Real Simple, Mind, Body, Green, and Reebok. Also, Barry has a wonderful book. I highly encourage everyone to get a copy of this book. It makes your soul feel good. It's called The Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness. And she has a new book, which is The Art of Money Workbook, that's coming out May of this year. Barry does touch on both of these books in our conversation. Today's conversation, it felt good. It felt good for my soul. It was so nice and such an honor to talk to Barry as she's been someone who I've looked up to for years and her work really, really has spoken to me. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Barry Tesler. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. I'm really happy to be here with you. Well, I'm happy you're here as well. We started out with me finding an old bio, but we're going to refresh the rest of the conversation. Your work is, it, it speaks to, to the deep inner of me, and I'm sure everyone else who reads your book, you can really see you put a lot of care and attention into your work. So there's so many different areas I want to start. On this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about our relationships with money. We're not going to start there, but I'm sure we'll get there. Instead, I thought we'd start with another serious relationship you have, 
And that's your love for chocolate, your relationship with chocolate. What has your relationship with chocolate taught you about living a good life? Oh, I love this question. I always say I was eating chocolate in the womb because my mom was eating chocolate milkshakes. (laughs) And so it's just (laughs) been something that I've had a love affair with since I was a little girl. You know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll remove it for a few weeks and then I add it back in daily. And I love dark chocolate. So, you know, 70% or higher is what real chocolate is for me. And it's just a daily enjoyment. You know, I remember watching the movie Chocolat that came out years ago. And then we walked over to the grocery store and everyone was like in the chocolate aisle. And I was standing there going, tell me what you want. And I, I don't sell chocolate. I'm not a rat. <laughs> Maybe in another life I could do that. But I was just like telling everyone my favorites, you know in the chocolate aisle. And it's, you know, whenever I have a big registration, I always end it with buying one of my favorite chocolate boxes for myself or now my son. So he has his own favorite chocolates. They're they're more milk chocolate with cherries in the middle and a little liqueur. But, you know, it's just a way for me to enjoy and also, you know, bring good chocolate whenever I'm going to someone's house and always have a chocolate dessert when someone's coming to our house. So, so, you know, it's just one of my favorite things. And my family jokes, how many times was chocolate mentioned in my money book, in my financial (laughs) therapy book? A lot. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I I, I can even feel and see the tone in your voice when you started talking about chocolate, just uplifted. And I think it's socially, we sometimes think, oh, chocolate's not good for you. You can't like chocolate. And I just love how you embrace it and and love it. I mean, there's some good nutrients in there. There's some good serotonin in there that's good for women going through, you know, menopause, which I've been through. I just think dark chocolate is good for the body and the soul. (laughs) Well, I've attempted to uh, try to learn about chocolate since I've been following your work. My six-year-old son likes this idea. (laughs) When I read your work and see you speak online or on different podcasts and just your overall messaging. I know I probably don't just speak for myself, but I feel warm when I hear your message. I feel almost uh, a level of safety. And most importantly, especially reading your book, I feel seen in terms of me and my money story. I thought we'd go back to the early 2000s when in your book, you talk about you met your first mentor, Tamara, your first money mentor, Tamara. I'm curious, what did she teach you about the value of being seen and accepted? And how has that helped influence how you've showed up or created the Art of Money School? So my first money mentor was Tamara Slayton. I, you know, finished my graduate degree, training to be a somatic psychotherapist, and studying all these other topics, right? So intimacy and sexuality and grief and death and relationships and body and food. And those are the topics that I thought I would be working with in my private practice. And then my student loan came due and I freaked out and, you know, realized how was I going to pay that back with a master's degree making, you know, earning $11 an hour full time, right? And also in that moment, I realized, wait a second, they completely left out any money discussions in my graduate program, training as a therapist. You know, that's insane. And how did that happen? And 
what did they leave out? Everything about what are your money emotions to what is your money story to how do you work with couples to how do you start a private practice, right? So there was all of that leading up to me deciding that I was going to face this big area of life, money, like I did every other big topic. And I had a detour where I was learning bookkeeping and then starting a bookkeeping practice. And I decided to leave Boulder, Colorado, which I am living it, living here again. But this is where I went to graduate school. This is where Naropa University is. This is where I moved in my 20s. Me and my husband decided to move to California I wanted to do an apprenticeship in authentic movement, which is a movement meditation practice that I loved and wanted to go deeper in. And I decided I was going to, you know, run a bookkeeping practice to make money, right? And which I had already been doing a bit of and making more than $11 an hour. You know, I was able to make 20 an hour and 25 an hour. And it was, you know, wonderful to be able to move through those money savings. So this is when we arrive in California, And I started hanging up these tiny little dinky flyers with my work. At the time, I called it conscious bookkeeping. And this leads to Tamara. It does. This is, you know, so so I tell the story in the book where I was going to meet a potential client and it was on a dirt road and all the dirt roads where we were living were apple orchards, you know, all the dirt roads led to apple orchards and we were living on an apple orchard. And so I'm driving on this dirt road. And I get to a few cars that were stopped in the road and I couldn't go any further. So I had to get out of the car and go ask the guy on the side of the road if he could move his car so I could move or drive to my my interview. And I get out of the car and I start talking to the guy and all of a sudden I realize that this is Warren Bellows. This is an acupuncturist that I had met and had a session with in Denver, you know, near my home a few years back. And it just, it was crazy to see this white haired gentleman on the side of the road and he lived right there. And we just started talking and he said, what are you doing in California? And what are you doing? And what are you, you know? And at some point he said to me in that conversation, you need to meet Tamara Slayton and I'll go move my truck. So he goes and moves his <laughs> truck and I go onto my reading and they become, you know, that interview turns out to be one of my first clients and it, it happens to be right next to Warren Bellow's house. So there is that connection. And then I reach out to Tamara and I realized pretty quickly that while I had let go of almost all of my belongings in our move to California, we just packed up anything we could fit in the two cars. I had saved these little pamphlets that Tamara authored about women and, you know, other topics. Okay. So Tamara was someone who mentored young women on all the big topics of life around death, about rites of passages, about menstruation, about rituals and moving into young womanhood. And then the end of her life, I wound up meeting her at the end of her life, the last few years, she started looking at money. Her whole philosophy came from Rudolf Steiner. All her kids went to Waldorf, which is a type of school, um, you know, my kids didn't, my son didn't go. I said, kids, I have one child. So <laughs> he went to Montessori. He didn't go to Waldorf. But that was what my mentor Tamara was steeped in. So she was more looking at money from the business side and from a mystical spiritual side. And my younger years, I was more steeped in that than I am now. I mean, that you know, that's always there. So she was someone that we met and then I, you know, I realized pretty soon I had held on to her work and pamphlets 
because when I was creating my master's thesis, my teacher or one of my mentors was connected with Tamara. Tamara was her mentor. You know, there's all these connections. And Tamara was the very first person who said, one, will you do my, will you do my bookkeeping like I was doing for other people? And I want to meet with you monthly to have money dates so we can review the numbers, right? She also was the first person to say, I'm going to create a little group for you. And I want you to teach about your work. And I looked at her like, what are you talking about? What is my work? And she said, it's time for you to teach. And so I realized it was time to create a beginning methodology. That's what I felt she was calling me to do. And I went on a walk in the woods, which I do. And I just, you know, said, what am I supposed to bring back to my community? How do I help people? At the time, I think my words were conscious, healthy, creative relationship to money. Now, today, I might say mindful relationship to money, savvy relationship to money, empowered, confident, right? And I just went out into the woods and got some information and came back home. And my husband and I were living in a tiny little cabin in the Redwoods before we moved into the apple orchard. He got a big white pieces of paper of, you know, we, we mapped out my art of money methodology which at the back of the, you know, 21 years ago, at the first phase was financial therapy. The second phase was values-based bookkeeping. And the third phase was life vision planning. And now it's money healing. Money practices, money maps. I've simplified it. But it's the same methodology that I've been teaching for 21 years. And, you know, she got me in a room of 20 people where I shared these three phases, you know, and was quite terrified because I was really comfortable with one-on-one work with couples, but I didn't like public speaking like I do now. It takes practice and I had to practice it over and over, but she was the first person to see me and say, it's time. It's your time to create this body of work. That's what I felt. And it's your time to show up and step up. And I did. And that was, you know, a huge moment in my life and my career. And as I mentioned, I got to be with her the last few years of her life. She had cancer and passed away two years later. And that was, you know, also very significant. And so Tamara Slayton was a mentor to me and a mentor to many, 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 many young women. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. And it seems like she's also in some form, a mentor to probably many of your students, just because I can hear the significant impact that she had on you to, to see you at that time where you have these scripts running around where you only make $11 an hour. You shouldn't be going out to make money like in your training, but yet you're door knocking and trying to get business. And then she comes up and just says, Hey, and kind of allows you to see the art of money inception. How have you seen other examples of this happening within the Art of Money school when when you have a student who might come and just giving them space or saying, I see you, I get you. Have you seen your acceptance of them sometimes gives them permission to be themselves? You know, that's a huge question. I think that's more for my clients and students to answer to Mm. some degree instead of me saying, (laughs) well, this is, you know, this is how I impact people. Um, But I started in small groups in my living room. So there were 10 people and then that grew to 20 students and then that grew to 50. I mean, I used to teach 10 groups of 10 people over and over and over, probably 10 a year at the beginning, just anywhere and everywhere. You know, in my living room, I drove to San Francisco. You know, in one given week, I was teaching four groups. 
at a time. And then I would do it again. And they were six weeks long, which I, you know, cannot believe that I used to teach this work in six weeks. And then that grew to three months, six months. And eventually I realized, you know, this needs to be taught in a year long format. And then they get the entire framework and then they practice it, you know, for years and years and years to come and fine tune it. So I've been teaching it in small groups. And now, you know, we have about 500 students a year and that shifts, but that's, it's going from 10 people to this, right? But the way that I've developed or grown or fine-tuned the methodology is by working with the community and is sharing the bones of the methodology and then seeing really clearly what I left out. You know, I pretty early on, I realized a few things. One, I was getting too quick to family history. Mm-hmm. I was saying, tell me your family history because I'm a therapist and I, you know, but I realized we needed to learn a few tools or practices like a body check-in to slow down and listen into what are the emotions right now? Or what are the sensations or where's the breathing in your body? And, and then we can get to family origin, right? And your money story and all of that and money beliefs. So I learned I was going too fast. I learned we left out forgiveness. You know, a lot of folks were coming to me And in the first group, you know, when I was realizing they were having memories of making a money mistake and having some regrets and still holding on to that. And I was like, oh, we need to do more work to honor the younger parts of ourselves that were doing the best that they could, that their money story was formed based on what they learned, what they did not learn, you know, strengths and challenges, their own personality, how they responded or rebelled to whoever was raising them, you know, their money mistakes we all make. It's normal for some of us. We need to forgive ourselves or we need to give forgive our parents for not knowing how to, you know, give us a solid financial education, let alone, like I say, I teach financial literacy and emotional literacy. And most of us did not receive a full education on either of those growing up. So, You know, what I'm trying to say is that I feel many things that I do this work. Like I'm not a theorist. I'm not an academic. I'm not going to do research. I do it by getting in the trenches with folks, hearing their stories, reflecting back what I'm hearing. This is normal. There's nothing at this point that I haven't heard. But also I do my work mostly in groups because I want us to realize we're not alone You know, we can come from different economic class or different lineages and still be handling money in really similar ways, or we can be really different and that's okay too and learn from each other. So I think the witnessing being seen happens not just from me, it happens from other folks in the community as well and by having a community. And yes, I'm constantly saying this is normal (laughs) and you know, it's okay. We all make money mistakes. We weren't taught about any of this. And I'm just saying, please continue to bring in gentleness and compassion and love to yourselves. Throw tough love out the window. You don't need that in this area of life. For some folks that may work, but not my folks, you know? And you know, or sometimes there's a couple and one goes to Dave Ramsey the husband goes to Dave Ramsey, the wife comes to me and they meet somewhere in the middle. I'm generalizing, right? So some yeah. guys certainly come to me as well, but I have a lot mm-hmm. more. So I think that I'll, I'll end with this. Most of us have many money emotions. And for many of us, the first one is shame. You know, and shame is I'm not okay. Something's wrong with me. I suck at this. Everyone else learned about money except me. 
So shame dissolves by being seen, by being witnessed in a group by one person, by one person who's earned your trust, you know, who is a safe space. And so, yes, that all happens in my private sessions and community over and over and over. That's my intention. That's what I'm going in with. So many wonderful, uh, wonderful comments. And my mind is trying to feel which the best way to go from here. When you started answering that question, you said that, well, I'm, you know, I'm not a student. And after I I asked that question, I understood that. And as you were answering, I'm like, I think I was asking this question for myself, because although I'm not a student, my background is a financial planner. And, you know, I started gaining this information around the inner side of money and the emotional side of money. And it was really piquing my curiosity. And really, your book helped me feel like it's okay because for as long as I can remember, I'm this male who participated in this financial system that's heavily op- are hev- heavily influenced by feelings of inadequacy, shame, guilt, if you don't have your things figured out. I think it was built with a heavy dose of male or toxic masculinity in this financial system that thinks figure it out. If you don't know how to figure it out, something's wrong with you. Just being in that system, and, and maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I feel like there's a lot of elements to that, that if you don't have your money figured out, something's wrong with you. And yeah, as a planner, not always having my stuff figured out, those things were ruminating. But when I started finding this inner side of money, it was it felt nice. And it was really your book that I was like, wow, this is amazing. I haven't even seen this before. And... So I think that question was for me. So thank you uh, for answering it in that way. So that's what I love. Okay, I love that. You know, I get folks, financial professionals, bookkeepers, accountants, financial planners, advisors, financial coaches, all of you, right? And you also need a safe place to do your own money work. You do. You know, you don't think as a therapist, I go to therapy or get coaching. I do. We, we need to do our own work. And in most of your training, In most of the traditional training, the psychology of money, our money emotions are just completely left out. And, you know, there is this like you are supposed to know everything, (laughs) you know, but I know so many people who can manage million dollar budgets for other people or great teachers, but they still have their own strengths and challenges around money. We all do. Right. No matter if you're a financial professional, no matter if you're a therapist, if you're a coach, if you you know, or in the corporate world, you know, and a high earner, or if you're, you're more of a creative and you're working on how to make money based on your art or your, I mean, you know, we all have strengths and challenges. So one of the very first things I have people do is list out five to 10 things that you do well around money, right? Name that, honor that. And then yes, there are other things that we need to learn new skill sets, whether that's emotional skill sets or more of the practical, right? And we all need to take baby steps to learn that. And so I love hearing that as a, you know, a financial planner, you were open to hearing my message, my work, my methodology that I was getting in and really supportive to you, right? So that you don't have to hold yourself and I have to be perfect. I have to have everything in place. Someone came to me years ago and said, you know, what are your assets? And you know, I was like, wait a second. Number one, I'm not going to share that with you, you know, and I'm a financial therapist. And so this is the part I'm working on. 
And it's not that I don't share, wouldn't be open to sharing my numbers because I used to do that in some of my programs years ago. And my mentor, Tamara, really supported that. But it was an interesting first question. So I want to know how much you have saved and invested before I'm going to go to you. And, you know, this was, I mean, 15 years ago. And I was like, I'm working on it. You know, (laughs) I'm working on it. It was just, it was, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with that question, but it wasn't the right question for me. It's so interesting that I always thought that, and I've shared this before in the podcast, that I knew what my relationship with money was. But what I realized through through doing the inner side of the work is I was really good at ignoring emotions. In university, I took emotional intelligence course, so I thought I knew it, but I was illiterate. I ignored them. I just went running instead or kept myself busy. And it was such an interesting last four or five years to see that I really joined this field out of an unconscious attempt to make my little inner child, who was a really shy kid, I was shy, feel powerful because I attached money and power. So what naturally would you do? Go manage people's money and try to be a financial planner. And as I stepped back, I realized how much I was unconsciously participating in this cycle of I don't like to say it, but I was like giving shame to some people who come and see me being like, here's the, here's the financial plan that shows red. You're not going to retire. You got to start saving more without even cluing in to think about their story or why that maybe they can't make those decisions that there might be psychological blocks that prevent them. So I am so convinced and I'm personal now here about the power of going into the past in order to kind of rewrite that story moving forward. What I'm curious is working with so many people. I feel like this is a bias to me, but I, if someone asked me, could I move forward in a healthy relationship with money without going in the past? I would be like a firm rigid, which I know rigidity is not good. No, <laughs> but based on your experience with way more people than, than with me, do you feel we can fully embody a healthy relationship with money without going to the past? Well, you know, I'm a therapist, so I mean, I'm a trained therapist. So while I love looking at the future now where I used to be afraid to look at the future or it was a skill set and a muscle that I had to learn how to use and work and practice, right? But yeah, I don't think you can ask any therapist and they're not going to say you have to. I mean, you don't have to stay in the past for a designated amount of time. You don't have to get lost in the past. But yeah, the whole first phase of my work, the money healing is going back a bit, right? And looking at what did you learn from your family of origin? Healthy lessons, healthy habits, unhealthy unconscious habits, right? And learning, bringing awareness to it, bringing deeper understanding to it, which then leads to change. So I think there needs to be some of that going back, that deep diving. Again, no designated time frame, and it doesn't mean you know, once you go back and look, you're done. You get to a place where you're done and you don't have any money emotions anymore. And you're just on your merry way. You know, this is lifelong work. And again, you don't need to go back and get lost there. And if you do, then please seek out a somatic therapist or trauma therapist and do deeper work and get personal support that way. You know, some people who join my program, we do a lot, bring in a lot of somatic tools and we are looking at the past and some people have had lots of therapy experience or they're in 12-step programs or, you know, they have experience with meditation or they, you know, they have some experience with that, right? And other people, it's newer and they realize, oh, it would be really helpful to get a private therapist 
in addition to this. But yeah, I do think going back to bring more awareness and review, what did you learn? You know, even in, in my family, I have three siblings, I'm the oldest. And we all were raised same middle class family from Chicago, entrepreneurs. And the three of us have very different relationships to money, you know, and I was a designated spender from very young age and they were more designated savers, you know, or more frugal. And how does that get formed in the same exact family? So it's both about, you know, who's raising you, what you're learning, what you're seeing, you know, what the parents are teaching you. My father was definitely talking to my brother who's almost six years younger than me about investments and not me. But also it's based on our personality. So it's nature and nurtures, all of it. That financial identity of being a spender was always given a bad rap. You know, it doesn't mean I overspent. It just meant for me, I really enjoyed things. And I had a lot of desires and I liked a lot of things, you know? And there's a, I was shamed a bit for that instead of when I finally learned to embrace that and then realized, guess what? You can be a spender and a saver. You're, you're not just one financial identity. You can rewrite your story. But I do think it's so important to go back to some degree. And that's why I have so many questions, journaling questions in the first book. And I don't know if you know, but I have a second book coming out on May 31st. And it's... The workbook? Yeah. So yeah. it's 200 pages of journaling questions, you know? So if you want to step into a set of questions that you can sit or reflect and journal about your past and questions about current relationship to money and earning and spending and saving and adding in values and moving forward and planning, all three phases are in there, money healing, money practices, and money maps. Go enjoy the workbook, which is coming out so soon. But yes, I'm really into journaling and asking yourself questions and you can write them out or you can just go on a walk with them and ask them and reflect on them in your mind. But I am a big fan of doing a review of the past. What's working? What did you learn? What do you want to change? What do you love again? And, and what's, uh, yeah, I'm repeating myself now, but what do you, what's working and what's not working? It's just simplified, but there's a lot more to uncover. And again, just to say that it's never done, as already mentioned, it's not that one day you won't have strong money emotions, but I would say that the more you bring awareness to them in the moment and you check in with your body, which is the body check-in and that's in the book and that's on my blog everywhere, that you can learn to decrease the intensity of the emotion. You can decrease the overwhelm. You can catch it sooner. You can realize, oh, I'm feeling some anxiety and you can name it and sit with it and it could be there for a minute you know, instead of, you know, many, many, many minutes. And so while they don't completely go away, you can catch them a lot quicker, say hello, anxiety, hello, shame, hello, anger, hello, sadness in the moments. And that can really change. And you can learn where did that come from? And what does that remind me of? And where's that memory from? And again, not to get stuck in them, but to say hello, to be able to name it, sit with it. And then it moves and then it moves, you know, it moves through your body, it moves and it moves. And then you move on to the next thing and then you can move on to, oh, now what are the practical things? So, you know, when someone goes to learn a bookkeeping system and they've done the money, some of the money healing work and they have the body check-in tool that they bring, they're much more prepared. The overwhelm, they catch it quicker or they have tools to check in. Am I hungry? You know, am I thirsty? Do I need to go take a walk around the block? Do I need to nibble on some dark chocolate? 
while I'm having a money day and learning a bookkeeping system, great, add it in. Am I starting to zone out when I'm learning the bookkeeping tracking system or when I'm learning how to read a report? Okay, slow down, take a deep breath. In the past, maybe you wouldn't even catch that that's happening and you wouldn't understand why you would would go into overwhelm or why you would go into freak out or why you'd be so mad, you know? So yes, I do think going back to move forward is really essential. Wonderful answer. I appreciate that. And again, so many different insightful comments there. I want to go into the the somatic technique and the body check-ins that's kind of foundational to your program. But before we go there, with with your story in the book, you talk about your relationship with your father and his his tough love. And earlier in the conversation, you talked about bringing kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Did any of those words help you work through your relationship with your father in realms to your life story and money story? Yeah, I mean, there's a direct correlation there. My father passed away two weeks before my first book was published. And then he was cremated on the day the book was published. It was wild, you know. And my father and I were very similar. He was intense. I can be intense. (laughs) Not in the public world, but like, ask my husband, I can be intense, right? (laughs) I can be really strong. I can be really direct at home. It was more like my father than my mom. And I'm very close with my mom now, but we were more opposites, right? You know, again, she was more frugal. I was more, but she's very generous. So with her frugality, she's very generous too. So I tell stories about my father because we're so similar. And yet I had to transform or transmute a lot of the hard stuff, right? It's why I went to therapy at the age of 16. I asked if I could go. It's why I became a therapist. I needed to do my own work. And I chose a program where you had to be steeped in your own therapy. You know, you had to do your own work in order to become a therapist. And with my father, there was so much power and money, similar to, you know, how you equated it, maybe differently, but I hated it. You know, I hated the power I felt over me. I hated the control that I felt over me. You know, then this goes back to the money healing work. Then you have to go back and understand what time were your parents raised in and, you know, what was their life story and their money story, you know, and all my grandparents escaped from Kiev in the Ukraine or that or surrounding areas, they all came over. So my dad was first generation, you know, Jewish, American, and, you know, If he would get into a fight, his mom would say, well, go back out there and beat up the kid or, you know, like go back out. And so he, I mean, he was raised with tough love. My grandma was not tough love with me at all. She was like the most loving grandma, right? But that's how he was raised. And so he just, you know, he had to be tough. And so, you know, he would tell me to go out and get a job and apply to five, five places over one weekend. And I was like, well, how do I do that? And I don't even know what to interview or I don't even know what I want to do yet. You know, at 15, he was like, just get out there, you know? So a lot of things that later in life, maybe I've embraced more, but I hated it and made so many declarations of, I will never be controlled around money. I will never be with a man who could, you know, has lots of money who will control me. And, you know, so I married a hippie and I was a hippie too, that, you know, 
30 years ago, and we've both grown together and we're equal partners. My husband and I have been together 21 years and we both have learned how to do this together. But yes, I mean, I didn't want tough love around money and I didn't want it in my methodology and I didn't, you know, so I, I pulled in all of the practices and tools and qualities from my somatic body-centered psychotherapy training. When I pulled in, it had to have deeper meaning and it had to be creative and it had to have some playfulness and, you know, and the savvy and all that came later. But I'm also like, there's a very practical part of me as well, you know, that I got to embrace and I cannot work for anyone else. And I'm the main, I'm the entrepreneur of the family that a few others have followed, but you know, I, and I discovered that later, but so I followed in my father's footsteps, but I had to make it my own way. I shaped myself based on being similar to my father and also really disliking, hating certain things. And that needed to be changed and done in a better way, in a more honorable way. But I will say that my father got very sick the last few years of his life. He had a stroke that changed him. And the intensity like was gone. He became a little kid. And the last years of his life, he moved into, and it was always loving and intense, right? But he moved into, all he could really say to me was, I love you and you're beautiful. And a few other things like that the last few years. And so there was a lot of healing, a lot of forgiveness. I was with him in the hospital, you know, when he had the stroke, you know, it was so, and, and in his passing, I felt like a lot of, legacy and money legacy was honored and healed and I was able to forgive and you know receive all the good parts and you know of how we're similar and forgive the challenging parts and and now have a much closer relationship with my mom who's 76 and gonna be 77 so wow yeah wow what a what a story and I think it certainly highlights the value of coming to these relationships when we look at our past relationships with parents around money with the value of bringing compassion, curiosity, because it seems like you could have easily just been rigid and said, no, 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 no. But you would have lost out on all these benefits to your relationship and the healing that you had. And certainly coincidental that he was cremated on the day that your one of your big entrepreneurial accomplishments releasing a book was was released. So thank you for sharing that. I want to get into the somatic side of your work, reading your book and other things. I can't remember if this was in your book or online, but it sounds like movement and dance was always a passion of yours. I think you want to become a dancer at one point. I I think I, I read somewhere that you'd like to shut your door and dance to the cure and Madonna to dance away the, the negative emotions. How has movement and dance helped bring you to this journey to bring somatic therapy to money and what what value does it bring you earlier you talked about these body check-ins but maybe can you go a little deeper and maybe use the bathtub example you had on one of your talks i was listening to that when i had an emotional event and it helped me it really really did when you talked about what are you feeling and naming it so i would love for you to share a bit of that with our guest wonderful i'll share the back story and then i'll tell that story and I love this question because I grew up dancing, jazz dancing, and then moved into African-based dance later in life. But I did a lot of jazz growing up. It helped me as a teenager so much because as I tell the story in the book, I would go into my bedroom 
play music and dance out any and every emotion possible. And there was a lot, you know, <laughs> sensitive and emotional. And I would come out of the room and then I would be able to articulate what was going on with me and maybe be able to express it to my parents. Where before that, I just couldn't. So obviously, like movement and dance, that expression was huge for me. It helped me feel the feelings. It helped me move them. And then it helped me be able to articulate what was going on. So when I asked to go to therapy at 16 and my parents said yes, and then they sent me to a, they found a male therapist and a talk therapist. Both of those really did not work for me, but I didn't know anything else existed. And so unfortunately, I just played games with the therapist. You know, I was playing games myself, but I just was playing games. That's what I did. And that's what I did with any one of the male persuasion, you know, that they didn't succeed. But that was step one. And then it led me to, I was living in Israel for a year. And I remember I was jogging on a kibbutz. And one day I had this epiphany that I was going to be a dance movement therapist. And I thought I made up an entire field. Or I thought I was merging two of my loves, dance and, ther- and psychotherapy. And I get to Jerusalem and I learn I didn't make up anything. There's a whole field called dance movement therapy, somatic psychology. There's graduate programs. And that's how I found my way to Naropa University in Boulder at the age of 24. And so I feel somatic psychology which just means body psychotherapy. It just means checking in with your body and acknowledging that you have sensations, that you have emotions, that there's physical stuff going on. You're, there's breathing in your body. Where is it in your body? You know, it's, we do all these things in our body. We store memories. We store beautiful memories. We store trauma. It's giving you other channels than just talk therapy and using your head and your mind. And it just means soma, body and mind are connected. They're connected. One is not without the other. And so, you know, when you sit and someone in a therapy session, you can watch. Are they, of course they're breathing, but like, are they holding their breath? Is their breath more in their throat? Are their shoulders up to their ears? Can you tell their jaws really tight? There's things that the therapist is observing. And then there's gentle encouragement or asking questions or asking the client to notice what's happening in your body or what do you notice when you do that little shoulder shake there? Or were you aware of that? So it's just bringing someone's attention to their body. Okay, that's simple definition of it. But for me, being able to learn those tools in my 20s was life-saving. It was life-changing. It was life-altering. It got me into my 30s. I got to do so much healing work around family I I mean, I came from a beautiful family and there were challenges like any family, right? I think everyone has some level of trauma from small to big. I also had lost four of my favorite men in my life from the ages of 20 to 25. I had an Israeli boyfriend that took his life. I had two uncles that died of AIDS and I had my beloved grandfather, Poppy, who passed away in his favorite chair, listening to opera and watching football. And I always say, like, out of that's the best way. Like, that's a good death, you know. And death is right. I don't know if we'll get one, but that's that was a good death. And but I was in such bereavement, and I started graduate school at the end of that period. That I mean, I was working on all of that, you know. And the somatic training helped me learn again how to listen to my body. Even though I was already doing that as a teenager, 
there's so many messages of don't listen to your body, ignore it, ignore the emotions, just, you know, stay in your head, right? And you were really taught, uh, but I was taught that to some degree too. And so to get the, the support and the witnessing that your body has something to say, listen to your body, not just your body, something to say, your body has a lot to say, and it will be so important and helpful for you to learn how to listen to it. So that was, you know, as I said, just life-changing for me. I learned those tools. We had a very experiential program. So it was, we learned a bit of theory, but it was really like we were doing work with groups and couples and individuals like in our classes over and over and over. We were working with someone, then we were the client, then we'd switch. So when I was called by Tamara to create the methodology from like day one, day two, I knew I had to bring my somatic training. I knew I had to bring in how to work with your body and your emotions. Because every book that I was reading on money, except Jacob Needleman's, oh. was so lovely. And he didn't yeah. talk about somatic or, or money emotion so much. But oh my God, that was, you know, that was one of the most beautiful first money books I read 25 years ago, right? And so, but it just was so missing for me. And I needed that. So, you know, the whole methodology was like, what do I need, you know, to step in to money, you know, or even to face it and look at it. And so the very first tool that I brought over is the body check-in, which you've already talked about. And there's an audio recording of it in my blog. There's written invitation and instructions in my book. And it's really just taking 30 seconds, a minute to check in with your body on a physical level on a sensation level, on an emotional feeling level, and where's your breath in your body to check in and let yourself notice and be curious. And then I always like to add a end of body checking with what is one little adjustment that I can make? You know, do I need to loosen my jaw? Do I need to do a little shoulder shimmy? Do I need to try to lower my breath? Do I need to put the soles of my feet on the floor? There's no right way. There's no wrong way to do this. It's really a practice. It's not one and done. It's not one and you'll calm yourself down the first time. It's an ongoing practice to be brought to every single money conversation, to when you're going to go online and check your numbers, to when you're going to go and make a purchase and from small to medium to large, you know. And I invite folks to do a body check-in before the money conversations or money decisions as prep like to prepare themselves if they can remember then or in the heat of the moment, in the middle of it, you know, when you're having emotion, what's going on? What am, What is this reminding me of? What am I feeling? And then after is a debriefing, okay? So we'll complete with this little story, okay? The bathtub story. So this was, uh, how many years ago at this point? I don't know, four or five, five years ago. I went to my mailbox one afternoon and I opened the mailbox and there was quite a few letters from the IRS. As soon as I saw them, I, I think I was getting sweaty. My breath started moving up my chest. I started feeling a bit anxious and I opened them up. And sure enough, the letters were telling us that we were being audited. Everything, personal, business, every you know business entity we had. And I went into quite an anxiety state. And then it lasted you know, sometimes you can catch a money emotion quickly. Like I tell a being in the car dealership and th that happened so quick. I went to the bathroom. 
I was feeling anxious. I named it. I, you know, was able to get my breath down out of my throat, into my chest, down to my belly. I was able to walk out of the bathroom in the car dealership and say, okay, honey, we need to have a money date, you know, and ask some questions, you know, before we're going to make this car purchase. But the IRS one really threw me in a loop and threw me more into a fight, flight, freeze state, a bit more extreme. And it took me a week or two of not being able to sleep well. And I'm a really good sleeper. My husband calls me a professional sleeper. And it wasn't until like a week or two after that afternoon, opening up the mailbox and getting the IRS letters that in the middle of the day, I just got the idea to take a bath. I work from home. You know, my son's at school now. We both work from home. I can do that. So I get in the bathtub, really hot bath, and I'm in there. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, my God, you know, I'm I'm in a fight, flight, freeze. I think I'm doing all of them. <laughs> you know, I think I'm in freeze, shut down. I think I'm wanting to run away, screaming. I'm wanting to, I'm pissed that we're being audited by the IRS, you know. But it took me... Until that day and the water, because the water's, you know, go take a bath, go take a shower. We all have different ways that we can tap into what's going on, to tap into slowing down, to tap into our emotions. And so I just took myself through my little process, which is, okay, naming what the emotion is, feeling it, sitting in the water. Like I just sat in it. What is this reminding me of? This is reminding me of an audit that my parents went through. That was a a hard thing. It was a big event, you know? Even though it was in my 20s when it happened to them, it was a big event. I'm afraid, I'm pissed, you know? I just went through the whole thing in the bathtub. Honored it all. Honored all the emotions, named them all. What did it remind me of? Sat with them, felt them in the bathtub, and then it, I, it was the longest bathtub, bath I took, you know, and I can take long ones. And then eventually it was like, okay, now let's move on and let's move on to what practical support do we need? What are some next steps? And that by the end of all of that feeling and, you know, again, sometimes you, it, it's like feeling for 30 seconds and I'm done and I move on. This took a lot longer. And then by the end of the bath, I was able to step out and realize, all right, I need to make sure my accounting team are going to support us and they're going to represent us for this audit, which they did. I need to like tap into trust that I've been through curveballs. I've been through big life and money events before. I have the inner tools and resources on how to do this. You know, me and my husband are a team. You know, I just like started naming all the resources I have in place and the next steps that we needed And while when I exited the bath, I did not know what the results were going to be of this audit and that it really took another four months before we got the final results, I knew how to set myself up better for those four months. And I knew that there was going to be body check-ins many times a day. I knew that, you know, I had to go in walks more. I had to reach out to the accountants more and they did an amazing job. And we wound up, every our original filing was accepted in the amount of paperwork that we had to provide. And it was all digital. Everything was digitized. Like all our receipts, when they asked for anything, we had that digital. I didn't need to go to paper receipts. So please know that, you know, <laughs> we made it through a hard audit with all digital receipts because everything's online now. And we didn't have to pay a cent more for that 
but they found a little gray area for the self-employment tax and our accountants, they felt were more aggressive. And so we were charged a bit for that. But all our original deductions were accepted. And, you know, it was a great triumph and accomplishment, even though we wound up having to pay a little bit more on that self-employment tax. Everything else was accepted and it was a rite of passage and it sucked. But we got to the other side. That's how that one ended. And great connection with the accountants and great support. And it was really all started with, whoa, I'm in a fight, flight, freeze. Mm. These are not just like your everyday standard emotions here. There's something bigger going on. And I talk about that. I, I don't know if I talk about that in the book, but I definitely have podcasts and blogs where I tell the story and I map out those, the steps that I take that you all can too in any of these bigger life money curveballs. Well, thanks for sharing that. And and yeah, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. And yeah, it was, it was very interesting where I was in a fight, flight or freeze when I was listening to that yesterday. And I went out for my default, which is just go for a run. And it just like, the I don't know, the endorphins of running just fueled me to being like, yeah, I'm so right. Then you got to that part and the part of where is it coming from really got me. And I was like, whoa, okay. And I, I was so convinced I was right until the bathtub body scan and it changed me on the in, like in the moment, and of course, to your point, lingering are uh, like it doesn't mean everything's going to work out, so to speak. But I just felt more at ease when I got home. So thank you. Great. I'll just say the last part of that is like we don't know how it's going to end, but I do, and we don't know what the solution is or what the you know. But I do know if we stay with the process, and that's what I, the process that I mapped out that you do get the support. You know, if you advocate for yourself, there is a solution and it, you know, it may not be, but you'll, you'll get parts of the story that hopefully feel really satisfying. Right. And there will be some good solutions that come. There still may be some hard things as well. Right. But I love that you went through that process and your default running. Like that's a great, that, that gets you in your body, mm -hmm. you know, and that moves things through. But I love that there's an extra layer of there too, more insight of what was going on for you so that you can possibly do that slightly different, you know? Mm -hmm. for, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a fabulous exercise. I have a question I ask everyone at the end. So let's time travel a bit and pretend you're at end of life, however old you are, and you're sitting on front porch. Maybe it's in Boulder. Maybe it's anywhere that brings you peace and just the feeling of contentment. And you're on this front porch and you decide to write a letter to your child's child about what you've learned to have a happy relationship with money. What would the theme to that letter be? Well, I think where I'll be is the first thing where I'll start, which is it will be in Taos, New Mexico. We are under contract for two and a half acres. And so this is for our future future because we're going to stay in Boulder for our son and soccer. And he's, he's told us we're not going anywhere. It's told him off. And so my husband will be building a home, which is his dream come true in Adobe. And we've always talked about rescuing more animals. So with two and a half acres, this is somewhere we will be. Okay. So that's something that, you know, I'm 53 now and we've been talking about this for years and years and years. And I just wrote a piece about big dreams happen in small steps. So, okay. So we're just, you know, there are many iterations to that dream and it's happening, you know, we're going to sign 
in the next two months for that land. And so that's a bit about where I'll be. I think this is too big of a question. I think that because, you know, I, I think it's like, God, what is my own money legacy? What am I passing on? Well, that's part of that's in the book, in the second book. And, you know, the newest thing I'm doing, which I'm opening up in a few weeks, I don't know if you saw this, is I'm opening my first mentorship for other mentorship program for other therapists, coaches, and financial professionals so that they have a safe place to do their own money work and so that they can bring these tools to their businesses and their clients. And of course, many of them are already doing that in my year-long program, but this will be solely focused on professional folks and so they can cross-pollinate and go deeper. So why am I saying that too? I'm saying that because my son and my son's son they're going to learn from what I've done well, but they're also, they'll still go to therapy. <laughs> My son will, you know, they'll still realize things that I left out and they'll still need to forge their own way. It will be a different time of how do you create a healthy and savvy and confident relationship to money? And how do you do work and create a livelihood that you love. That's important to me. And I know that that's not possible everywhere in the world, right? But it is possible where we live. And I want that for my son and my son's son or my son's children. I think you'll be everything that I'm teaching plus everything that I messed up on or left out. And then they'll be finding their own way as well. But it will certainly include financial literacy and emotional literacy it will be informed by the somatic work. And then all these new things that I don't know about that will happen after I'm gone. Oh, I really appreciate that. Or I hear a lot of, you said this exact thing, he'll find his own way. I, it's interesting how, you know, you talked about your work, a legacy can help shape that. But I really heard an emphasis on finding his own way. And I think that speaks to your story that you found your way and a lot of what you teach. Yes, now, what song would be playing in the background? I don't I, I you know. <laughs> it's hard to say, but boy, I don't know. Years down the road. <laughs> I don't, I think there'll just be the stillness of the desert. I don't think there'll be any music playing. Uh -huh. We'll literally just be yeah. of the desert. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I really, really appreciated our conversation and your work is, it's meant a lot to me. Where would you point people to find more information about yourself, your school? Yes, my website has it all. So please go to barrytesler.com and you'll find my blog. You can sign up for my email list. We send out a new email every week and you'll see my Art of Money program. You'll see my mentorship program on there, access to my books. And then on social media, I love Instagram and Facebook. Okay, well, we'll put a link to all those. And yeah, once again, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me and for a really lovely, slow paced, which <laughs> I appreciate today interview. Thank you so much. Well, thank you.